Welcome back to The Boomer, a podcast by the International Livestock Research Institute, looking at how sustainable livestock is building better lives in the global south. I'm Annabelle Slater, and in today's episode, we're asking if there's a conflict between supporting animal welfare and supporting the well-being of the world's poor through livestock farming. And to explore this question, we've engaged Peter Singer, Peter Singer is an Australian philosopher, a bioethicist, and is widely regarded as one of the most influential intellectuals living today. Singer says that alleviating global poverty is the most significant moral challenge of our time, and this has been the focus of much of his life. It's even led to the creation of a whole movement called Effective Altruism, a movement that says we need to find the best ways to help others and put these ideas into practice. But interestingly, and perhaps controversially, Singer is equally known for his views on animal farming. He believes that we should consider the welfare of all sentient beings, including animals, when making moral decisions, and that includes on what we should eat. In fact, Singer's seminal book, Animal Liberation, which was published some 50 years ago, is regarded as the intellectual cornerstone of the modern animal rights movement. So farming animals, eating animals, eating animal source foods, these are important for the nutritional and economic well-being of people in lower to middle income countries. But can we even talk about animal welfare in the same way in the global north compared to the global south? Or are there important moral distinctions that we can make? Well, we asked Singer for his opinion on industrial farming systems in high-income countries compared to smallholder farming systems in lower-income countries. So I think there's a significant difference between that and confining animals um, and bringing food to them. Uh, And one difference is simply that the animals are able to move around, they're able to perform more behaviours that are more natural to them, uh, in some circumstances, they're in social groups that are natural to them as well. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, a whole lot of things that are done to them in industrial, industrialised farming don't really uh, occur. For example, the, the chicken industry is based on selective breeding of birds who grow extremely quickly so that the standard American chicken is slaughtered at about six weeks of age um, and because it's selected for such fast growth, um, it can uh, often happen that the bird puts on too much weight to be supported comfortably by its legs. Um, and in some cases, they actually, the legs collapse under them, the birds are unable to move. Uh, and because you're talking about 100,000 birds in a shed and just one person who doesn't want to spend too much time in the ammonia-filled shed anyway, um, they're quite likely to uh, starve or die of dehydration before anyone it you know puts them out of their misery, um, and then there's a whole range of other conditions that are caused with uh, because they're bred with such fast growth. So you know that isn't going to happen with free range um, birds. Uh, they're going to have to be strong enough to walk around, and they'll, they'll grow a little more slowly, but they'll have better lives. You know, I'm not an absolutist about saying we must never use animals for our ends or anything like that. Um, I am concerned about the suffering that we inflict on them, and that suffering seems to me to be completely unjustified. 
So Singer believes that industrialized farming systems can cause a lot of suffering for the animals involved. But what about smallholder farmers in lower to middle income countries? And in case you need a reminder what smallholder systems are, they're small farms. Farms that could be anywhere from 1 hectare to 10 hectares in size. In fact, five out of every six farms in the world is less than two hectares in size. And smallholder farms produce up to 80% of food in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa. In Africa alone, there's an estimated 33 million smallholder farms. The needs of the people must play a role. And, and you know, when I first started thinking about this issue, uh, obviously you think about people who can't nourish themselves and their families adequately without animal products or pastoral people. And I don't think I have the right to tell um, other smallholders who would not be able to get the variety of foods that they and their family might need to be adequately nourished, that they can't um, have a few chickens running around the village and collect their eggs or maybe uh, occasionally kill one of the chickens and eat them. Um, but, um, I do think you can defend people who really have a, a significant nutritional or cultural need to um, have uh, to farm animals um, and who are treating the animals in a way that is reasonably natural and to which the animals are suited and where you can say they're, they're having a, a high level of welfare. Smallholder systems can have a higher level of animal welfare because they allow animals to have more opportunity and more space to perform natural behaviours. So free-range chickens, for instance, can walk around, can dust bathe, can forage, but these behaviours may not be seen as necessities and may not be permitted in industrialised farming systems, which aim to grow and process huge numbers of animals using minimal resources. Smallholder farms also differ in the way that farmers can relate to their animals. We talked to Rebecca Doyle, who's a scientist at the University of Edinburgh and at Ilry, who leads Ilry's efforts on animal welfare, about her research. She's had conversations with smallholder farmers in Ethiopia about exactly these issues. It's really interesting when we speak with animal owners in a, you know, a village setting or a smallholder setting, they really do describe their animals as being reliant on them, but just as much as them being reliant on their animals. So it's kind of, they, they really describe it as a two-way situation. And that's, I think, speaks to what Peter said as well about it, this sort of integration and need for each other. They know that they need to be providing good care for their animals and, and in return, their animals will be providing for them for food security and, and income sources. Doyle also sees that animals are much more of a part of family households. Owners can see the animal's natural behaviours, and there's no disconnect between the animals and the animal source product, the meat, the milk, as is often the trend in cities and urban areas around the world. One thing that's also really interesting when we have, you know, community conversations about animal welfare is that without prompting, people give often like a multidimensional description of animal welfare. So animal health is the most important thing that they bring up first. Obviously, and that makes sense because the same for us, if we don't have good health, then we don't have good welfare and the same applies to animals. But then animal owners will also go forwards and keep describing that they need, you know, behavioral opportunities, uh, that their animals are happy when they have these resources that are important to them, that they, you know, want to keep them in shelter so they are safe and protected from the elements and, and, 
have these opportunities for natural behaviour. Now, some people believe that animal welfare is a luxury, something that only high-income countries can really afford. But it's a practice that could and should be integrated into all livestock systems, regardless of the size and context. And that's because there are many practical benefits for farmers. In short, supporting animal welfare in short, supporting animal welfare is not only good for animals, but it's also good for supporting humans. You can link animal welfare to several of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, including zero hunger, good health and well-being, clean water, biodiversity loss, even climate change. At Hillary, we found ways that animal welfare is important to improve animal, human and environmental health, and it increases the productivity of livestock and the safety of animal source foods. Here's Michelle Dion, a senior scientist in the Animal Health Programme. He talks us through the benefits he's seen in his research. Yes, um, as I said, um, improvement of welfare will uh, directly lead to improvement of uh, productivity. Because uh, when you um, feed well your animals, you put them in good shape, uh, you give them clean water, they will not get sick quickly, uh, you will reduce the pressure of pathogen to, to the farm, then you reduce the risk of your animals being sick, and then consequently you reduce the mortality rate, then you increase your number of animals in your herd, and then you sell more animals, more healthy animals, you improve public health because your animals are not sick, they are well maintained. That is number one. And number two, if you take the example of transportation, uh, when your animals are less stressed during transport, transporting in good conditions, then uh, bacteria which is in their gut, in their stomach, uh, will not be shed at the amount that is alarming that can really make uh, issues when you consume the meat after slaughtering. The example that Dion is referring to is that when chickens are transported to slaughter, if they have a stressful journey, they'll shed increased amounts of Campylobacter bacteria. This bacteria is the cause of diarrheal disease in humans. So if we reduce the stress of chickens, we reduce the amount of bacteria shed, reduce the likelihood of diarrheal disease, and have a positive impact on human health. So improved animal welfare also improves human health and this could be seen as an imperative to treat animals better. But to return to Singer, does he think that we should make a moral distinction between those who have a cultural or nutritional entitlement to eating animal source foods, and those that could or should choose to eat a plant-based diet? Well, if you can walk into a supermarket and buy plant-based foods, that will replace the... Um animal foods in your diet, and especially if those animal foods are coming from um, factory farms, or let's say um, you don't know that they're not coming from factory farms, because I think it's your responsibility to find out, then um, I don't think you should be eating the animal products. But um, if you don't have that opportunity to purchase nutritionally adequate food without the animal products, and if you also know that, uh, well, either you're raising them yourself or you're buying them from people in your community who you know are not uh, 
don't have factory farms but are um, allowing them to range freely, then uh, I think that's something that I would not criticise. I do think a, a legislative um, minimum is essential because otherwise in a free market economy, uh, any practice that gets an advantage by uh, treating animals in a worse way, and I mentioned some examples of that earlier on, is going to succeed in the marketplace uh, unless you have a really educated consumers who say, no, I'm only going to buy from farms with high standards. And to return to Doyle. So I guess to start with, I think there's like a a carrot and a stick approach that sort of apply. And then I think the kind of stick approach is sort of a legislative approach, right, where you can have um, regulation in place about the what are the minimum standards for which we need to be caring for animals. And I think there's a lot of work that can be done at a policy level to improve that um, internationally. And and the carrot for me is the, the points that we were describing before about how, you know, sentient animals have the ability to experience pain and experience complex feelings and that's why it's our responsibility to care for them and I think that a lot of animal owners or people that you know care care for animals could really identify with that not everyone but uh, a lot of people can and so that approach I think is more of a grassroots one to, to changing animal welfare or having concern for animal welfare um, and I think that's also one that relates to the public as well. So legislation for animal welfare will raise the bar of standards for animal care, and change is happening. One example from the Global South is that is the development of an animal welfare strategy for Africa by the African Union. Similarly, this does seem to be happening in a lot of countries worldwide. There's a changing appetite for welfare legislation and an awareness that comes with it. As we see people's consumption of animal products increasing, it often does go hand in hand with awareness for um, where those products are coming from and whether that's a food safety perspective and making sure, you know, so there's animal welfare benefits that can come from that or co-benefits. But then through to actually the treatment of animals is something that does does come on the radar more often. And so I think it's really important to be trying to not correct for problems once they've come up, but be proactive in preventing them, which is, I think, the why it's so important to be having discussions about animal welfare in low- and middle-income country contexts. It's important that these conversations are happening in the Global South as the population rapidly increases and the demand for animal source food does as well. Let's take Nairobi as an example. Although in Nairobi most animal source foods still come from smallholder farms and pastoralists, There's an increasing number of factory farms and industrialised settings. If we don't involve animal welfare and regulation in the face of more demand, this could be catastrophic for the well-being of the animals involved and detrimental as well to human well-being and livelihoods. Population is forecast to grow faster in sub-Saharan Africa than other parts of the world, so presumably um, the demand for animals uh, will, animal products will increase, um, at least uh, uh, among those who can afford it. And uh, that makes this a, a really important area to be working in. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks for joining me on The BOMA. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave a review and get in touch with us on social media. We'd love to hear what you think. See you next time on The BOMA. The BOMA.